How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Coming up on today's show, a number of healthcare centers in our province have closed beds among a staffing shortage. We have a lot of jobs available in our country, and at the same time, we have historically a very high unemployment rate. How do those two things happen at the same time? And 75% of Canadians report having to delay major life goals due to the pandemic, and now they're eager to get started. What's the best way to go about it? All right, uh, going to deal now with the situation regarding hospital bed closures in our province. You never want to hear about that. And right now we're looking at um, about 100 beds across the province and as many as 12 different hospitals being closed because of staffing shortages. Um, and obviously that's a concerning situation. The health minister, as I said, we asked him to come on the show and talk about it today. He's unavailable, um, but we do have some comments from him. He was asked about it earlier. Um, he says the government actually was anticipating staff shortages saying, that's because of vacations. We did know that coming into July that um, we were going to have pressures from a human resources perspective um, in July and in August. The HS is going to make sure they continue to respond to that. So that's Tyler Shandro saying that they're going to continue to respond. He also went on to say that they are throwing everything they have at recruitment and retention and resources are not an issue. So uh, let's find out exactly what the situation is with Heather Smith, who is the uh, president of the United Nurses of Alberta. Heather, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I apologize. Hi, Heather. Sorry, I forgot to hit the button. Are you there? Oh, I'm here. Good morning, Shay. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Yeah, those numbers still hold up? About 100 beds closed in about 12 different locations? Is that what you're hearing uh, for the latest? Well, we're trying to ascertain through our, our locals um, how many sites have either beds closed or services diminished, how many are requiring mandatory overtime. My list has about 14 on it right okay. now. Um, but I just have to ask you a question, Shay. Did you just say that the minister said they're pouring all their resources into recruitment and retention? That's exactly what he said, and he has, been, he has told AHS that resources are not an issue on that front. That's the comment from uh, Health Minister Tyler Shandro, yes. Really? Because wouldn't you think one of the things that you would do if you're looking at recruitment and retention is not suggest that the workforce be paid less? Um, that occurred to me. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it did seem to be, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Heather. There's no question. Um, the question, that I, uh, what about, uh, you know, I was hearing from a spokesperson from your organization uh, earlier this week saying that uh, this is the most severe staff shortage that they have seen in the province of Alberta in their memory? That is certainly the case for many um, members in our um, organization and our membership. Um, it's unprecedented uh, from my recent experience, certainly. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we normally have, and we've always had uh, recruitment issues to places like high level. I mean, in the late 80s, I remember the, they had to have uh, agency nurses come in. Um, but uh, it's not just the northern communities. It's not just 
the central communities, which were reported to us a few weeks ago, but it's right across the province, and it's in urban settings now as well. As you know, they've closed. Right, yeah, closed. and that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty notable change, right? I mean, we see these kinds of incidents happen in rural centres, but I know there's at least six beds closed at uh, the Royal Alec in Edmonton, at the Cross Cancer Institute in Edmonton. So when you're seeing it happening in the big centres, that's, that's quite different. It is different, and it's certainly, I think, indicative of the overall deficits we have. And unfortunately, I don't see a short-term uh, turnaround uh, based on you know, how the, the workforce is feeling at this point in time, both in terms of their physical and psychological exhaustion, as well as the messaging that new grads will be getting. So, I, you know, our fear is that new grads won't look to stay in the province and those who are currently here, our senior uh, practitioners, may well opt to uh, withdraw from the workforce entirely come this fall when they have to look at paying their annual registration. Um, the Premier and the Health Minister, when asked about this situation, both pointed to, we expected this in July and August when healthcare workers take summer vacations. This is not mm-hmm. new. This is something that happens every year. Um, is that true? Do we see staffing restrictions every year because of summer vacations? Well, we see some changes in service delivery. For instance, um, ORs may close for a short time um, so that physicians and uh, surgeons and others can, can take vacations. That, that kind of stuff has happened for as long as I've, I've worked in the province. But um, this is not that kind of, of situation from my perspective. What's different? I think we just don't have the workforce, and it's interesting that the minister would say they expected uh, to have shortages, and in fact, he probably should have, because over many, many months, AHS has had a very tight rein on any kind of replacement of staff, any kind of vacancy that arises, whether that's from a um, somebody retiring or somebody moving on to another job. There's a very elaborate uh, process for a manager to have that staff person replaced, sometimes taking many months, sometimes not replaced at all, sometimes only posted as a temporary position. So we have, in fact, created a, a shortage by not appropriately recruiting and retaining staff in the, in the positions we have. So what do we see you know, in terms of um, the outcome for patients? Obviously, the bottom line is longer waits, right? There's longer waits. Uh, certainly it will occur in, in certain areas. But it's not just that. I mean, if you're told by your manager that we, you know, we are not going to be able to replace the two RNs and the two LPNs, and because it's not just about RNs, it's uh, it's also LPNs, RPNs, healthcare aides, where we have shortages across the province, and managers will say, um, today we have to cope with this, and that means you know you do minimal care, you don't do necessarily the the bathing and and the mobilizing and that kind of stuff because we simply don't have the the staff to to give that kind of attention, which is necessary from my perspective to patients. So it does affect care when you don't have an appropriate number of staff, and we've been arguing with AHS for a few years now in terms of what is appropriate because we don't believe some of their numbers uh, rising out of operational best practice are appropriate for patient safety and staff safety. But it, it, it does have implications for patients and their families in terms of what uh, desired, if not essential care, uh, is not uh, undertaken in workplaces. I'm trying to wrap my head around the shortage itself, and maybe you can help me here. Um, do we not have enough available nurses looking for jobs or do we have not enough jobs 
we we have the the talent pool out there, but they can't get hired on. There's not enough positions. Uh, wh- where's the staff shortage coming from? I think it's. Um, I personally think it, it's more related to we just don't have the resources in the province. Um, whether that's because of people withdrawing from the workforce as as a contributing to that, um, but we have not had uh, any kind of robust, <laughs> any kind of retention and recruitment for many years here in the province. So I think it's just an overall deficit. I know in the North Zone, for instance, they have indicated that when they do post vacancies, they have significantly less uh, applicants uh, for those jobs. And you know, even if new graduates are applying for those jobs, and, and many of them do, and, and you know they get their sort of their feet under them in terms of of care in a rural setting, as uh, many as soon as possible move on to uh, positions that become vacant in urban settings. So it's uh, this constant uh, turnover, which has its own implications for the staff that, you know, the the long haulers, if you want to call it, staff who remain there in terms of that constant uh, churn. And it has costs. I recall hearing that an average cost for every turnover in a position is about $20,000 in terms of skill upgrading and that kind of stuff and just the, the whole process. So it, there is a cost to turnover. There is a huge cost in terms of practice when you have that kind of turnover, particularly in, in rural facilities. Uh, Heather, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Shay. Have a good day and stay safe. You too. That is Heather Smith, who is the president of the United Nurses of Alberta. Um, and uh, whenever we talk with you know the Teachers Association or the United Nurses of Alberta, I, I see your texts. Uh, a lot of people saying, "Well, this, what, what, what would you expect the union to say?" Uh, you know, they want um, more members and they want more dues and all those sorts of things. And uh, yeah, okay, I, I get what you're saying. Um, they also are there to advocate for their employees and things like that. And as I said. We did ask the health minister to come on and give us the government's side of this situation. He was unavailable today. Uh, We asked him for a statement. Didn't get one. So we're relying on the comments that he made earlier today. We're definitely trying to get um, the other aspect to this story because you're right. Um, You can't just take the union without getting the response from the government. We tried. The pandemic obviously caused a tremendous upheaval in the labor market, easily the biggest shakeup in recent memory. And it would now appear that the effects are going to be felt for some time going forward. Um, As we heard, a lot of vacancies are right now. So let's get some insight onto this. We're going to chat with Julie Labrie, who is president of Blue Sky Personnel Solutions. Julie, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So I guess the big thing here, the overarching message is we've got a lot of vacancies out there and a really hard time filling them, right? Absolutely. It's so hard for employees right now to find good, qualified candidates, and it creates a shortage for everyone across the board and across the country. So, you know, when we were talking about this, a lot of listeners are saying, well, are all these just minimum wage jobs that people don't want to work? But it's not, right? It's right across the spectrum. Absolutely. It's across uh, everything, entry level, mid-level, senior level. There is a shortage. People are um, scrambling to get employees. And we had a problem pre-pandemic. It was already we could see it as recruiters. We could see it was difficult to get qualified candidates. But right now, it's even worse than it was before. There are a lot of people that are still scared of going back, Mm -hmm. especially in the office full time. And 
um, they're still waiting, and candidates are getting three to four offers at a time uh, right now. And I, it has driven the salaries up uh, drastically. Okay, so let's break some of those down. We've had a labor shortage before. This is just making things worse. Is that fair? Yes, it's it's worse now than it was before. Okay. Um, when we take a look at you know what companies are doing, three or four offers for people who are out there. I mean, those are people with specific skill sets that companies are looking for, right? Yes, absolutely. So what we're seeing is that every time a candidate gets an offer, it's almost you know like. At least 50% to 75% of those people already received other offers by the time we present it to them. So they have so many options on the table. And in order for those employers to get those people to come on board, they have to increase the salary. So we've seen it in the last few months that they've had to up their salaries and also vacation packages and benefits to get them on board. So all kinds of incentives being added to try and get the staff to, to, to bite. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay, help explain this to me. Um, We've got very high unemployment in the country right now, higher than it's been in some time, especially here in the province of Alberta. How can those two things exist at the same time, high unemployment and a shortage for companies trying to hire people? Yeah, exactly. And this is... This is one thing that I'd like to know is that exactly out of out of that unemployment numbers, how many can actually work versus how many can work? Right now, um, there are a lot of people that are not qualified based on the employer's request. So a lot of those employers, they want someone to come in and they're fully trained. They just want them to start as opposed to taking the approach of I'm going to train someone to bring them up to speed. Uh, And it might take me six months, eight months, 10 months to train them, but I'll have someone. A lot of those employers don't want to do that. They just want someone to come in and get them working right away without having to offer them that training that's going to bring them up to speed. So that's what creates the shortage at the moment is the fact that they need people that are trained right now to come in because they're so busy. They have so many uh, things going on internally. The demand is higher on every sector's. So they need them to be trained. Um, you know, when we take a look at this, like, and we've we've heard of, you know, the hospitality industry and things like that and tourism and things really having a hard time finding it. You know, what other sectors are being especially hard hit by this right now? Well, for me, because I do mostly bilingual recruitment at Blue Sky, uh, French and English, uh, it's, it's in demand as well. You know, there are, um, they have, so many opportunities out there, and those employers are having a hard time getting those bilingual candidates to come and work for them. But we've seen it also on the English positions as well, just English, those employers on the office side. What creates the um, the shortage right now is that those employers that are not flexible offering work-from-home opportunities or even flexible work days in the office and at home, they're losing out. And that's what creates the shortage because people are still scared. They've had a taste for working from home for the whole year, and now they just said, nope, I'm not interested in going back to the office anymore. Uh, I want to have the opportunity to do two or three days at home and then go to the office. But those employers that are offering five days a week only uh, in the office, they're losing out right now on people going to want to work for them because that's what those people, they want that flexibility now. They have a taste for it. I have to imagine that CERB, 
And um, the fact that people can stay home and not work is playing into this. And also, um, you know, the wage subsidy programs announced by several governments in terms of if you're going to hire new staff, we'll pay some of the the salary for the first year or whatever in order to get things up and running and get the economy going again. Those kind of government programs, I could see one reducing people willing to go to work because they're doing okay staying home and also companies bringing on more positions because they're paying less in wages. Do those two combine at all? Well, yes and yes and no. I mean, those people that are staying at home and they're okay with CERB, receiving CERB, they're not going back until it's completely done. They don't have EI. Uh, they don't have anything. They'll have no choice but to return. So they're just sticking and staying home. So they're not applying. What and the other side about the um, the wage uh, subsidies, unless you increase the salaries, you're still not going to get the people to come in to work for you if you don't have a good offer at the end of the day. Yeah, because you got to make more money working than you would not working, obviously, or a lot of people exactly. would choose to just not work. So who are the winners yeah. and losers here? What, what kind of um, segment? Is it is it skilled vets that are making out well, or is it young people that are willing to, you know, be trained up and, and be willing to jump into the workforce? Who Who's in the best position to capitalize on this? Right now, it's the employees. Employees are in the best position to capitalize on as much as they want because the employers are so scrambling to get people so they can go and say, I want X salaries, I want X amount of vacation, I want to work from home or have the opportunity to do that. The employees, it's an employee's market. So those people, they can go and ask for more. In a lot of cases, they will get more from the employers right? because the employers will know that if they don't, they're not going to stick around and they're not going to have anyone. So they're in a really good seat, those employees, to, to make all kinds of demands right now. So we're kind of in a perfect storm here. Like you say, in, in terms of economic activity and restart and all the rest of those things, it, it's workers that are going to propel that, that are going to force that. It's going to cost more, though. Wages are going to go up. So there's a downside to that. So um, we're sort of in a situation where we're damned if we do and damned if we don't, really. Mm-hmm. And employers will have to become more creative. If they're in a position that they can offer more salaries, yeah. um, be creative. You know, if you can't offer five days a week to someone at X amount of salaries, well, maybe you can offer someone to work four days a week um, at the same salary, and they'll be happy, and they'll have the work done. Sometimes the employers will have to be creative and think about that, or train that junior person and bring them up to speed, because that's also a really good alternative those there are a lot of good junior candidates that are just out of school they want to work train them hire them and there's no guarantee of course that they will stick around um but at least you'll have someone that will do some of the work and you'll generate some money from them by by having them on board as opposed to leaving the position vacant and then you're losing opportunities you're losing customers right because they're not served well yeah, absolutely. Uh, what a mess. Uh, Julie, thanks so much mm-hmm. for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. You bet. That's Julie Labrie, who is the president of Blue Sky Personnel Solutions. Think about this pandemic and how it uh, upended life for you during the last 18 months, regardless of who you are or what position you're in. 
We all paid a price through here. No one made it through unscathed, right? Life as we know it was paused for all of us, and the impacts are still being felt, likely for some time. An interesting survey was done recently. It found three-quarters of Canadians say they had to put off major life goals because of the pandemic. We're talking about things like weddings, uh, big trips. Um, my son lost his high school graduation. I mean, they turned it into some little drive through thing. And shout out to the school for trying to make it special. But it's not the same. And, and all everybody has a story like that. Everybody has dealt with something like that. Um, so how, how do we deal with that? Where, where, do, where do we go now? Let's get some insight. We're going to chat with Bryn Weingard, who is a business brain expert who partnered with Bel Air Direct on this survey. Uh, Bryn, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Shay. Okay, before we even get started, a business brain expert. Can you explain that? Yeah, um, it's, you know, really, it's just using neuroscience, a a division of neuroscience called applied neuroscience to help people do work better. So how to be more productive and motivated um, and taking what we learn in very scientific, complex labs and making it accessible for people. Interesting. Okay. So you partnered with this survey that found 75% of Canadians said they had to put something off. And I guess that makes sense, right? But when we're talking about putting off major life goals or events, what kind of things are we talking about? Do I have it right? Weddings, graduation, things like that? Absolutely. No, you said it perfectly. You know, and in, in, from our survey findings, what people said they weren't able to do were things like, you know, really achieve the height of of what they wanted when it came to fitness, uh, when it came to learning. So, you know, yeah. as you can imagine, people had to put off, you know, or did put off going back to school, you know, really having that experience. Many people saying that they weren't able to, um, you know, find the resources, the capital, sometimes the money for things like buying a secondary property or buying a vehicle um, and so and certainly of course things like travel so people feeling like they've been sort of you know not only personally but but interpersonally and culturally kept back by this pandemic and really you know not able to achieve the things that they wanted to now obviously a lot of that was just you had no choice because of the restrictions and things like that but I think for a lot of people just having that massive amount of uncertainty injected into our worlds and you know can I plan a trip for for this time next year. Who knows? I don't know. Should I, you know, am I going to have a job? That kind of uncertainty, I imagine, played into the decision-making for a lot of people. Absolutely. And so one of the factors that we look at is something called VUCA, right? And it's a military term, but it's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And those are four uh, circumstantial factors that do send the brain into disarray, that have people feeling, you know, anxious and stressed. And when people feel as though they don't have an out, they don't have a way of coping with the, with volatility or uncertainty or mm-hmm. complexity, that's when we start to see real mental health challenges play in. And so in our survey, we also asked people that question, you know, how is it, what are the things that you think are holding you back? What are the the challenges? And most people actually reported what we would call perceived psychological barriers. In other words, it was, it was internal to them. So it wasn't, they weren't saying, actually, it was the laws that were holding me back. They're saying things like procrastination or fear of failure, um, a fear, a feeling that you don't have enough social support as an example. So many people not you know, blaming the government, let's say, or even the circumstances or the external world for what they feel is holding them back, but actually claiming that it's them, it's their own perceived psychological barriers that are likely to hold, that are currently holding them back and likely to hold them back in the future, which, and that is a very, you know, that's an interesting piece of insight. Well, we know that as human beings, we we need, we 
we like that control, right? We that sort of not having that sense of control and and sort of being able to to map out our futures is really, really, you know, jarring. It's not something we handle well at all. No, and it does create a, a supreme amount of stress. Absolutely, and that's when we start to see things like not only reported stress go up, but sleep disturbances, yeah. uh, hormonal disturbances. You know, we definitely have great research that shows that people who are stressed start to do things like multitasking, which, of course, we know that's not natural to the brain is to have to multitask. It wants to focus and single task, um, and so lots of of what we call coping strategies that are in fact dysfunctional start to take place when people feel as though their choices has been removed from them. Absolutely. Um, now, as we're starting to emerge from this, and it's going to take time, it's obviously not the flick of a switch, but um, are people reporting that they're feeling pressure? Like, we've got to make up for lost time. We've got to get all those things that we maybe had to pause for a year and a half. We need to do them now kind of a thing? Yeah, and Shay, you said it perfectly. It's almost as if people don't acknowledge that something big has happened right. to them that was imposed on them. It's as though they're blaming themselves for their lack of progress and for their lack of productivity. Absolutely. And so when we asked that question, people reported, yeah, I feel this impending need to make up for lost time, to make up for lost traction, despite what's happened. And that by itself, all by itself, creates a you know, this sort of um, intimidation factor, right? And that's where a lot of those psychological barriers come in is people basically saying, I'm already overwhelmed and I haven't even gotten started yet. And you're just ramping up the pressure on yourself. So what's a better approach? Mm -hmm. You know, as we all have goals and we all have things that we want to do that we haven't been able to do, what's the best way to approach this in a healthy way that will actually help you be uh, more successful in attaining your goals? Yeah, it's so we have many of them. I've written them down for people. They are free, of course. Go to belairdirect.com, find the blog. We've, you know, there's a laundry list of ways that you can help and, and cope with how to achieve these goals. But here's a couple of my top ones. The first is to write it down. One of the things we say from a neurocognitive perspective is that when we call it the magical act, but when someone is forced to actually physically, and I don't mean type it, I mean physically write it down, you get a lot of clarity around what really matters to you. What, what are you saying to yourself as a goal? And what is something that is actually a high priority for you to achieve? So that's the first thing is write it down. And then when you write down, let's say, a life goal or, um, you know, an aspiration or a dream, uh, because this is what we call the dreamers versus doers campaign, right? Like the idea that we wanted to understand, how do we move you from being somebody who's thinking about doing something to somebody who's actually capable of doing it or, or actively achieving it? And so as we move into doer, one of the truths is that it really helps overcome that intimidation factor, that feeling of overwhelmedness, that procrastination that happens with that, you know, in the psychological barriers. If what you do is you take that big life goal or that aspiration, that dream, that to-do item, and you break it down into what I call chewable chunks. And it, it seems very straightforward, and it is, but it does in fact follow a complex and knowable a whole phenomenon in the brain, and it's something we call the Zagarnik effect. But basically that when you decrease the barrier to starting something, you're actually much more likely to start it, of course, but then to finish it. People like to finish what they've started. And so we know that if you break down a big thing into chewable, tiny little goals, you get actually a whole um, cascade of great neurochemistry that happens as well. So things like encephalins, endorphins, dopamine feedback loops start to help increase almost like the motor of your brain. It increases how fast you're able to accomplish things. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, the third thing, you know, and we have many more, do go to the website, but the third thing is to ask for help. So we are sure that, you know, if you need psychological help, everyone else, as an example, has been through the same thing. And so it's hard for you now, you know, as compared to yesteryear, to go to your friends and family who are also under duress, who are also in the same boat. So if you need that help, ask for it and ask for it from professional and reputable organizations and companies, including, and that of course includes things like legal, financial, and insurance help as well, right? We want to ensure that you are securing your future, you're securing your time, your energy, your money, uh, the things that you are going to put in the way of becoming a doer, of actually achieving these things. We want to ensure that, you know, they're safe and that, and that you're capable of achieving and that, that those dreams are, you know, real and, and you have help achieving them. So you're talking about sort of clearing the runway for takeoff here. What about if you're lugging yeah. around a bunch of guilt? Because we see people who, hey, I learned a new language. I learned how to play guitar or I started a walking program or I lost 50 pounds during the pandemic. Uh, what if you've yeah. wasted the last 18 months like I have and have really accomplished very little um, and you're feeling like, boy, but did I ever waste that time? There's so many things I could have done. Uh, that guilt's going to drag you down as you try and get started again, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's one of, you know, guilt is one of its guilt and shame are one, are two of the kind of most toxic emotions that people carry subconsciously that hold them back. And that to your point, it is literally like carrying a weight around. Yeah. Self-talk is really important, Shay. Like that's one of the things that, that I talk about a lot with people is that you don't even realize on this non-conscious, subconscious plane that the number of times you berate yourself in a day, as an example, for not losing the pounds or for not achieving the goal or whatever. So I think that's an important thing to do is to stop and and have a little check-in with how are you treating yourself? What are the things that you say to yourself when no one's listening, when no one's watching in the privacy of your own mind? Because those are going to, you know, that's going to make or break you. And so what we see is that when people start to practice more self-kindness, that they actually increase in things like their... um, self-confidence, their intrinsic motivation, a sense of self-competency and efficacy. Uh, so that's that's what I would start with is to say, you know, a little self-kindness is going to go a long way. And definitely our survey results show people are taking it out on themselves, right? They're blaming themselves yeah, for, absolutely. for what they weren't able to do. Yeah, And that's not helpful. So just give yourself a break and get started with the first step. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And a little self-kindness goes a long way. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Bryn, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Shay. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bryn. Uh, That is Bryn Weingard, who is a business brain expert. Pretty cool title, right? I'm a business brain expert uh, with Bel Air Direct uh, talking about this survey. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 